Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, July 5th. We hope all of our U.S. panelists survive the 4th of July fireworks craziness uh, in good stead. If you've come here via YouTube you want to know and you want to know more about what we do, head over to officehours.global, our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Typically, we, um, we do this every single day, and this is no exception. Today is audio day, so we're going to, in our second hour, be talking about microphones, what they're all about and how to use them. So um, we always run based on your questions. So hopefully you've put your questions in the Mukana uh, interface, and that's what's going to drive the show today. So those are the standard rules we deal with every day here. Right now, it's time to get to our first question of the morning. So let's dive in. Mitch, what have we got? Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand asks, does the panel have an opinion of the Warm Audio WA87R2 for home studio and Zoom? Working into a mix pre six. Carl Asmussen's going to start us off this morning. Carl, how are you? I'm good. Um, into if you've got the mix pre six already, then yeah, the warm audio is not bad. It's it's one of the better clones of the U87. Um, you can look at other clones. There are a lot of clones. Like Golden Age has one, and Baron just got their B2 Pro, which is another clone. Um, if you're using it for Zoom, it's a little bit overkill. Um, but if you're using it for dialogue recording and you're recording into your um, Mix Pre 6, then it's it's quite good. You've, you need to be very aware that it will pick up every sound. It will pick up a dog two suburbs over. It will pick up a truck going past. So it's a very sensitive microphone for that case. Um, but it is a very good quality microphone if you have a, a room that's uh, well treated to handle all the frequencies that it can pick up. And George of the Tech with him. Um, yeah, that mic is, um, because it has figure eight, you can experiment with that because sometimes figure eight rejects more of the background noise or makes it worse. And so try both cardioid and figure eight and see which one sounds better for your use case sometimes, especially in a small booth or a small room, the figure eight will reject the sidewall resonances and other things like that. So that's a fun option to play with, but it's a good, good affordable uh, option as a clone of a, a U87 uh, Adrian, thanks for your question from way down in New Zealand. Let's sneak over next question. Next question in from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. And here in our panel, I'm exploring Logic Pro to record and edit dialogue, not music, versus my current DAW. Recommendations for a YouTuber or other source for advanced editing tutorials? I only find rudimentary manual examples compared to my current workflow. Carl's going to help us out again. Carl? So, Ripple Training. Um, there's $29. This is the dialogue and voice one for, they've got about a dozen different programs for Logic Pro. Um, but this is the one tailored towards dialogue and voice. But yeah, if we take a look at Riff Training, take a look, you can take a look at their videos and take a look at like a bit of introduction. Um, but that's probably the highest quality you're going to get for Logic. Alex Lindsay. What Carl said. <laughs> Ripple training. Uh, you know, uh, Mark and Steve are old friends, I will admit, but uh, they have some of the most organized and well thought out training in the industry on anything that they actually touch. So anything you see on Ripple training is going to be great. And their logic uh, tutorials are great. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of us have, uh, they're one of the first resources we go to when we're looking to learn something quick and well. Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Is anyone experiencing audio playback issues with Resolve 18.1.4? I thought it was just my old Mac Pro, but on my new M2 Mac Mini with uh, 8 gigabytes of RAM, it takes approximately 2 to 3 seconds before I hear audio after hitting play. Editing H.264 video from ATEM ISO. 
Alex, help us. I haven't had that problem, but I will say that I have been having some audio anomalies inside of Resolve 18, uh, 18.1 and above. Uh, so, so I'm, I've had some playback issues. I don't, I haven't quite got to the bottom of them to the sense that I can tell you what that is, but I can confirm you're not the only one. And so I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but I've definitely had some, some playback issues and, uh, especially with I'm doing five, one playback. So it's a little different than just stereo, but it's still, um, and mine has been just unstable playback. So, uh, Chris Fenwick wants to weigh in. Chris. Alex, I'm kind of surprised you didn't start with always convert to ProRes because uh, Alexander says he's using H.264. I would always convert. I wouldn't edit H.264, so you're still right. <laughs> so I wouldn't. I would always go back. I I don't. I don't edit on. I I just edit in ProRes. Um, but I was really just focusing on the fact that I'm having trouble with playback in ProRes. Uh, in uh, even ProRes in Resolve, but but yeah, the, the the bottom line is I would never edit in anything less than ProRes. Um, was, you know, it's just too much trouble. I was serving up a softball there, Alexander, because Alex quite often will say, <laughs> "Don't edit anything but ProRes." So he he starts all of his edits by converting everything <clears throat> to ProRes. Yeah. So and you said you were editing in H.264. I'll tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll tell you that I don't have time to do that. There are occasions when I go, huh, that's a weird problem. And then I'll convert it to ProRes. But 98% of the time, editing in H.264 for me, it, it works fine. And we've had in, in, Resolve, in Resolve specifically, we've had issues where it plays back okay and then it doesn't render. And it usually comes down to an MP4 or a H.264. We've lost hours <laughs> working on with edits that don't, that don't render properly because there was an MP4 or an H.264 in there. Not that I'm bitter. And do you only see that on the export, Alex? Or does Sometimes, it just not yeah. export at all? No, it, it it crashes on the export, which is even better. So it doesn't, uh, uh, yeah, it'll it'll actually crash. It, it just crashes on the way out. And then you can't, it took a long time to figure out that we had to convert. Once we converted all the, in this case, it was MP4s. But once we converted the MP4s to, and they played back, they looked fine. They played back fine in the app. And on export, they were crashing the render, but not giving us any reason that it took us a while to figure out that it was the MP4s that were crashing the render. And that just further underlined my obsession with uh, ProRes. All right, I think we've dealt with this. Let's move to the next question. Jonas Donald from Stuttgart, Germany. If you had to build a audio rack for a typical corporate event, what would you put in it? With many uh, channels, would you? how many channels would you need? Um, Let's take with Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway. First, Ronnie. Well, uh, we have um, used a lot of uh, Alden Heath, and um, we tend to use the SQ5. And um, previously, we used uh, up to 12 channels. We've seen that that's a little bit low uh, if you need to add computers and Zoom calls, etc. And we've using the SQ5 a lot uh, because of uh, the auto mix uh, uh, system that Alman Heat has put in place, and it's really good for debates, etc. Uh, et nice, uh, Carl Asmussen. So the one thing I'd probably put into a rack would be an M32C. So this is essentially an, an X32 in a one U rack form. Um, it'll take uh, essentially um, a. It'll essentially take in. Um, from a stage box, you can bring in 48 channels. 
um, on two different groups, actually. Um, and then you can mix down. So essentially, it has all the programming that an X32 has, has the expansion slot, so you put Dante into it. So it's, it's essentially, it's an X32 just in a 1U rack. It doesn't take a lot of space. You can get the rack version of the um, the X32, but this one is kind of good if you're doing a corporate events because you know you're going to be stage boxes. You're not going to be putting mics into the back of the room where this is going to sit. So there's no use having your mic inputs. So this is a little bit better, a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier to move around as well. Marty Adius. Oops, Marty, you're muted. Mm-hmm. Well, I've done corporate events where there were just uh, four wireless microphones. And last week I did an event that had uh, 20 tabletop push-to-talk microphones um, that I had to auto-mix and set up monitor speakers for because the table was so large. Um, so I used two XR18s, fed into an X32, then then zoned um, zoned the microphones for monitor outputs, put up to six monitor speakers on the floor that were zoned with mix minus so that each zone had like four people and anybody from that group who spoke did not get their audio fed into that speaker, but they heard everybody else. So there are lots of different kinds and scales of corporate events. Um, But the M32C is great uh, if you uh, want to software control your mixer, other, if you like a hard hardware control surface, use uh, the M32 or X32 console with stage boxes, of course, and that way you can use the stage boxes to not only bring in your microphones, but to bring out your speakers as well. Alex? Our typical kit for a typical corporate event has been an X32 with uh, four to six Axiant channels um, and a free speak. I mean, that's the kit that we would put in there. Um, and then we would sometimes have an X, uh, XR18 to mix things for the for the free speak if we needed to make it a little bit more complicated uh, for comms. And then we usually add studio technologies, um, Dante belt packs. Um, so those are the things that, you know, uh, they are kind of connected to that, you know, four to six of them. And this is for, again, very typical number of channels, uh, number of processes there. Um, once it gets more complicated than that, then we start talking about QL1s um, are typically the thing that we will step up to uh, if we if we need to do something more complicated than the X32 can handle for, again, a typical corporate event, not a, you know, complicated one. Uh, and Jeffrey Powers. I'd put a lock on it because you never know when somebody decides, oh, let's start playing with some dials. Uh, also remember that, you know, it's also about that room. If this is a permanent thing, then uh, make sure that uh, you've got uh, that you're looking at the room as well for whatever you're doing. The more microphones, the more problems. And Marty Atias wants to come back in, Marty. Yeah, Jeffrey makes a really good point, whether this is a, a portable system or an installed system. And and how many of those microphones need to be auto-mixed because the M32, X32 can only do eight channels of auto-mixing, which is why I brought in the XR18s because they can do 16 each. But if it's a permanent install, I would consider using a, a full-fledged DSP like a Symmetrix or a QSIS or something like that. Um especially if there's if it's an installed system and you're not going to have an audio operator then you want to create your workflow 
create your signal path and lock it down and tweak it up and make sure that it's you know going to be consistent. And Ronnie had a half follow up. Ronnie, yeah, like Marty said, uh, the limitations uh, on the Behringer was uh, our chose to go to SQ5 and uh, have have many more channels of uh, of um, automix. Uh, also, Alan Heath has this QU dash pack. PAC uh, rack mounted mixer, which is uh, something I'm going to look into as uh, as soon as possible. And Alex, as as I uh, as a former owner of a QPAC, um, I would uh, recommend make sure you have a good return policy <laughs> before you buy it, <laughs> like or test it. That's all I'd say. Fair Not one. I have one that I pulled out of a client's uh, facility, replaced it with a uh, an uh, X32 rack. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, rack is a way better solution than QPAC. There you go. The wisdom of the panel, always very useful. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Bo wants to know Does a Dugan style auto mix exist in any software mixers? If not, how hard would it be to create? Alex. I realize, well, I'll let Carl answer it. I realize I don't know. I was, tr- I was looking through when looking at this question and like, I've never seen a Dugan auto mix, a, a, a true Dugan auto mix. Now, the thing to remember is that there are auto mixes that are very similar to Dugan. The, the patent for Dugan ran out, you know, some time ago. And so there are definitely auto mixes out there. I haven't seen a pure software Dugan auto mix specifically, although I have seen other auto mixes that probably work in a very similar fashion to the Dugan. Carl Asmussen. So, yeah, so Waves worked with Dugan. This is their second iteration now, $600, 64 channels. It's a plug-in. So that's it. So this is it. So this is the second version. They did have Dugan Auto Mix um, about six, seven years ago, and this is their second version of it. They've increased I think the first one was about 16 channels. This is 64 channels. Um, they, they put it in for speech because that's what the Dugan was for. But, yeah, so Waves. Just check out Waves, Dugan Speech. There you go. Ronnie Hofsoy. Yeah, exactly what uh, what Carl said. Uh, we were experiencing um, uh, some troubles using that plugin in different types of host application, but that's at least the the, the Waves uh, uh, Emotion LV one is uh, is usable. But um, it's uh, yeah, all about cost. Marty Atias. And uh, and if that's not a good solution for you, if you're not using a Waves rack. Um, you can put a DSP in front of your mixer and get uh, auto mixing for any number of channels and then throughput the uh, each microphone to your mixer so you have mixing control for monitors and such. Um, I find DSPs, even in live events, very useful. Let's move to the next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts, Craig wants to know, Conferencing apps and services each act differently to duck or cut off a second person talking. What are your best ways to reconfigure or cope with it? Jason Bates is going to start us off, Jason. Um, if you're having unpredictable output, then I would start by trying to standardize the input. So um, just like we do every morning on the panel, a, a sound check to make sure everyone's gain is, is about right should give you a more predictable outcome. Jeffrey Powers. There's really only one way to control this whole thing, and that is if you are controlling the uh, source of the, if you're the host of this conferencing software, then you can make all the changes from there. If you're using somebody else's conferencing software, you're running into problems. And then, of course, 
at who, how, how are they coming into the conference? Because that becomes a big thing. Are they using mics like this? Are they using uh, microphones that are coming from their laptops? So they're using it coming from their cameras. It, it just becomes a whole hodgepodge. So it's really hard to, to do any type of control. And a lot of people, they're turning on the echo cancellation, the noise cancellation, all that, all those other effects because they're coming from their laptops. They're coming from a microphone that's six feet away from them. And so you just have to do your best and having the control of the web conference is the best way to do that. Let's move to the next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio. When using the AWS Elemental link, what's the best way to ensure the appropriate audio level is coming in and being streamed? Alex. Yeah, so the the best way to do this with any streaming is to um, monitor your audio on the way in and monitor your audio on the way out. And so what we do is we have a Mac Mini typically, and it has um, you know an SDI input. And so we split the same signal that we're sending to the link or to an encoder, we run that into a Mac Mini, and we're getting scopes. And we're seeing all the channels that may be going out. Uh, we're seeing all of their levels, their level history. Uh, oftentimes, we also want to see things like a leisure meter so that we can tell whether we're in phase or out of phase or in polarity or out of polarity. Um, the, and also things like spectrograms and spectrographs so that we can see any kind of buzz in the line. And that gives us a visual reference to look at of the audio going into the encoder. Then we usually have, we open up a web page going full screen, a web, the, whatever output we're looking at. And we have that in a second window, oftentimes on the same Mac Mini. So it's just two monitors. Um, but one is, again, doing it on the way in. One is doing it on the way out. Sometimes we have to split those depending on how we do the audio uh, into two Mac Minis there. But basically, we're looking at in and out. And we're trying to make sure that nothing is happening in between as we go through that process. It's on major events. That's what we do for all of those things. Um, and what it allows for, especially if you have multiple events. So if you have one event, you're listening to it, you're going to be looking at meters. When you're streaming eight rooms or 20 rooms of, of, uh, of content, you'll be able to look at a wall and say, that room... <laughs> that room over there is too low and this one is too high and this one has a buzz and this one has and i can do that visually uh, when i have scopes for each one of those inputs that are going through and being displayed and yes it turns into a bit of a it turns into a full just our just our audio and video uh, scopes generally takes a full almost a full height rack um it's about uh 72 inch high um road case is just Mac mini stacked up with all the IO. And that's just there to, to take a look at the, at the signals going in and out. And I'm going to stop for a second and remind you here that your questions drive the show. So please put your questions in. We have a robust group of questions and an amazing panel today in terms of audio expertise. There is no other place right at this moment. I think you can find more decades, uh, maybe centuries of expertise than on this panel right here. So get your questions in and please vote the questions up and down. Uh, with this much activity and this much expertise, we may not get to everything today. So please be active in your voted. Thanks. And let's get to the next question. From Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart. For audio, what is the main concern with mixing remotely? Is it latency between using a fader versus when you hear that change? Marty Atias is going to start us off. Marty? All right. Well, I assume that I will assume that we're talking about remotely mixing for broadcast versus trying to remotely mix for the room 
which you should not do, <laughs> uh, because you can't hear what's going on in the room. Uh, so remotely mixing for broadcast. So latency would be my first concern. Uh, other than that, uh, uh, the the interface between what you're mixing and and what the room is mixing, uh, how those two mixes work on the console, um, because there may need to be different EQs for some of the inputs, uh, different dynamic uh, controls for the room versus broadcast. Um, so those are some of the differences and uh, that need to be coordinated and worked out between whoever's mixing for the room and what you're mixing for broadcast. Carl Asmussen. Yeah, so as Marty said, if um, we're assuming that this is for mixing for a stream and not mixing for front of house, um, there are a few things you want. You want your own essentially split off of all the microphones. So you do want your own mixer. You, you don't want to be sharing the front of house mixer. As Marty said, there'll be dynamics and EQ on that you don't want to put into the broadcast. The one thing you you really want is eyes in the room. When when someone on the stage is about to leave and then someone asks a question and they start to walk back to the, the microphone, but you can't see that they're doing that. You don't know to open that microphone because you've closed it down for the stream. Um, so having eyes on the room and where people are moving and what what microphones people are walking to. So someone may have, the batteries may have run out in their body pack and they may walk, walk up to the podium. If you can't see they're doing that, you don't know to open that mic. So you want kind of eyes in the room um, constantly so you can see what's actually happening in the room so you can preempt. The person in front of the house will see it, but you won't see it. And you don't want to rely on the front of house mix to come to you to remix. You want to mix your own. So that's the only thing I suggest is have eyes in the room. Latency is not a big problem because if it's just humans talking or a band, you don't have to change levels too much. You just set the levels and off they go. But um, it's opening mics and closing mics, incorrect timing um, for those kind of things is eyes in the room, funnily enough, is what you need. And Alex. I mean, the biggest problem we've had with mixing remotely has really been related to the software. You know, that the software isn't doesn't feel totally baked. So there's just a lot of things that we're used to in, on larger consoles, and it just doesn't feel like the software in the in the cloud is uh, as fully featured or as stable as what we see um, in in uh, on the ground, and I think that's been the biggest problem we've had with mi mixing in the cloud. Let's go to the next question from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Alex, will you give us a walkthrough of your travel gear setup? Alex, take it away. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the goals I've been doing this for a while, and I keep on rebuilding this. And part of it, I'm trying to really get it down to smaller and faster. You know, so I I need to be in a relatively contained kit and I needed to be able to be set up very quick. Right now, my my uh, my record is today was eight minutes and 12 seconds. I time it every time I, I set the case down, I hit the timer, and then I set everything up to see how fast I can get it done so that I can measure the quality of what I'm doing. Um, I have a Pelican case. It's a six, it's an air version of the 15, 1510. So it's like the Pelican air. So it's got, it's a, it feels a little bigger than the regular uh, 15, uh, 10. So it's got a little bit more room to work with. I can't quite fit everything into the 1510 itself. Um, and then I have, I have some lights and I have two small light stands that I can use that I'm, I'm not using right now because I've got windows all around me here. Um, but I have those there. Um, I have this, uh, I got this little case, which turned out to be pretty key. So basically this is, this is, you know, it's some random case that I got on, on, um, on, uh, Amazon, but it's called an Orient 
fam famule <laughs> famule um there there it is there and what it has is it's got a bunch of these little pockets in it and these are just little um you know stretchy pieces here and then it's got a whole window down below down here i put an atem mini um and a mix pre 3 um under, in this under part with the, with their power um and then i have uh, and then so each, all the cables, and I only have the cables in here that I need. I have another cable bag that has kind of what I would consider a crikey kit, which is just a couple extra cables just in case something else comes up. But, the, but I know that when this is empty, uh, I'm set up. <laughs> so, so, and they're in, I've kind of gotten into the habit of they're in the order of AV and in the order of what I need. Um, so I've got, um, a laptop. This is a 2019, I think, or 2020 Intel, uh, Mac, uh, MacBook, MacBook Pro. So it's got four connections. Uh, one is power. The other one is the ATEM. Another one is the Mix Pre. And I just wired one during the show, uh, the final output. Normally, that's an Ethernet connection, but I don't have an Ethernet connection where I'm at. So, um, so I, uh, but I'm wiring that into the as another input into the 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 ATEM Mini. Um, I have what's called a Brocoon or Brocoon. It's B R O C O O N. It's a little stand that my laptop sits on and it unfolds. It folds into almost nothing and then it unfolds and I can put my, my computer on it. And that allows me to raise that computer screen up relatively effectively. And it's turned out to be very key. I got it kind of and kind of used it and then realized it's, it's a must have. Um, I'm using a Manfrotto. Uh, I believe it's a Manfrotto. It's a light um, uh, tripod um, with just a little ball head on the top. It's like a little ball head that just lets me just kind of grab onto it. Um, I have a FX30 with a 1.4 G series, uh, 35 millimeter lens inside of a small rig, um, that is attached to that. Um, so I've got auto, you know, the autofocus makes it easier to get things set up. Um, and that's it. You know, that's, it's all pretty, it's, it's a handful of wires. I keep on shortening the wires where I don't think I need them. So I'm putting, I have longer cables in my, uh, once I've done it once, especially for here, cause I'm doing it every day. The longer wires go into the crikey version and the wires that I need at the length that I need are in, are in the case itself um, so that I can set up very quickly. Um, and again, it takes about eight minutes to set up. It fits into one Pelican case, so I just assume that's my carry-on. Um, and it's, it's just the right size, maximum size that you can do a carry-on in the U.S. <laughs> so um, uh, I probably would have to do a couple things if I was going overseas because this, this kit will get um, uh, declined um, by Lufthansa. <laughs> I don't know about the other ones, but I know Lufthansa um, is not my friend. Anyway, so uh, that's the kit, and it, it, it's it's I think it's working pretty well. Oh, this is a DPA sixty uh, forty sixty six that is wired into the mix pre, um, and the mix that goes into channel three of the mix pre. I hear everybody else through channel one, so I I can attenuate that as as needed. Uh, Courtney has a question for you, Courtney. Yeah, do you ever carry a, like a hundred foot Ethernet cable to avoid using Wi Fi or? perhaps a, a mini access point that you can carry with you to keep the traffic onto a separate access point uh, if you can't carry a cable. Yeah, I usually do. This The the house that I'm in is locked down. So Ethan, it's not a, it's not an Ethernet problem. It's a access problem. It's a rental facility. And and so I can't I can't get into it. I've tried. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the uh, so yeah, so so, so anyway, I, I probably you start tried carrying lock picks. Is that the next stage? I, I probably tried a little harder than I should have. So anyway, so but but the um, uh, but but the uh, yeah, so the, it's I will I do have an Ethernet in my Crikey that's I think twenty 
five feet long. And I'm usually what I'll do is I don't carry anything longer than that because usually I can buy something. If I'm going somewhere where there's not going to be any ethernet possibilities, but usually I'll carry a 25 and I'll buy anything longer. And to be honest, I often buy them and leave them because hundred foot is a lot to carry. So it's just kind of a cost of doing business kind of thing for me. I give it to somebody. I don't throw it away, but I give it to somebody that I'm working with or talking to a random person at the airport here, have a hundred feet of ethernet, but, um, uh, but I can't usually fit it back in my case. Um, but anyway, yeah, but I usually carry either a 25, sometimes a 50 with me. I have a 25 here. Um, I just can't, I just don't have anywhere to plug it in. So anyway, yeah. So, but, but yes, I definitely do that. And I've got a couple different Ethernet adapters available if, as needed. And Jeff Cohen has a question. And with today being mic day, uh, it sounds great, but why the choice to use that headset mic versus something else? Yeah, I have a, I have a, I mean, obviously the headset mics are much smaller um, and they're easier to, to manage. They, um, uh, I have, I do carry a, a Countryman H6. And in some cases, the Countryman H6 sounds better. So if things are really, uh, if uh, really soft around me, the country, I, I find the H6 sounds a little bit better. Um, the, uh, but in a more lively room, the, the uh, oftentimes the 40, the 4066, I prefer. So anyway, so that's, I'm, I, but those two go, go with me and they're just light. They're light and they're easy and they do fairly well when people, well, not, not too many people are, my, my mom isn't laughing in the, in the, in the background. So that's what you're hearing right now. Playing I think Bill, uh, Bill, if I'm not mistaken, I think described the same thing with the countrymen. Just certain rooms or circumstances, it yeah. sounds better, and vice versa. Yeah, so yeah, I can't the two of them together. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Nah, I, I think we're done. Uh, Jeff, did you have anything you wanted to add, or are you finished? No. Okay, we're moving on then. Thank you, Alex, for the tour. Let's go to the next one. Next in is David Brady in New York, New York, asking SoundDesk. As a native matrix router, what are the pros and cons of using this versus loopback? Jeff Cohen's going to start us off. Jeff? Yeah, I think from from what I'm aware uh, of the big differences is mainly going to be the the fact that you can use plugins with it. So um, each each channel has uh, slots for eight AU plugins for Mac, um, but not to mention that it comes with a decent set of built-in uh, stuff. Uh, I'm just looking to make sure I got the list. I mean, it comes on each channel. You can have, you know, compressor, de-esser, gate, EQ, par- two different EQs, reverb, etc. And that's just what you get in the box. Plus, um, I-, I believe it can do MIDI, and, and I don't believe Loopback does MIDI. And Jason Beish. I love both of these apps, and um, I, I wouldn't really think of it as a pros or cons. The two feel somewhat different to me. Loopback has its own audio tap into um, Mac OS, and it is extremely low latency and it's extremely visual. So I'd say one of the major benefits would be that you can understand Loopback um, without knowing anything about how to run an analog mixer, and um, you'll be just fine. Let's. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris Fenwick had a last-minute entry. Chris? Yeah, David, I, you know, the Matrix thing I find super um, interesting, I figured out my whole system, and then somebody pointed out the Matrix thing to me. So I just haven't played with it. It might work just fine. As long as you can gang multiple apps into one input, it's probably okay, but you're going to end up using Loopback anyway. Okay, ready for the next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio, asking, when an event is being mixed for the venue audience and for broadcast, what are some best practices? Two ops, different meters, etc. 
And since we have such an amazing wealth of experience here for the audio side of things, we've got a lot of people who raise their hands on this one. So please, everybody, try to keep it as concise and the most powerful information you have first. Let's start with Ronnie Hofsoy. Ronnie? Yeah, definitely. At least have two separate mixes. You can have one operator, but uh, two mixes is uh, really important. It's also difficult to to mix uh, the the live stream feed when you are sitting in the same room as the PA is uh, thundering out. So keeping the the separate live stream mix in a separate room with separate speakers and headset is good. And please do remember to have an audience mic uh, up in the stage uh, ceiling or whatever. So you also get the ambience for the for the people that are listening to the live stream. Excellent. Jason H. Um, yeah, you could do this with one operator, but I would say as a rule, especially for, for mission critical things, I would run the house mixer on pass through and, um, and then allow, you know, every, the A1, the A2 or both A1s, whatever you want to call it, um, their own discretion as to the signals once they've been, um, you know, gain staged appropriately. And Alex Lindsay. Oops. Yeah, we use two people. <laughs> two people, sometimes the same mixer, uh, too. Sorry, I, I forgot that I raised my hand. I saw so many. I was like, I was working on the next question. Um, the, uh, the two, two people, um, for, for the mix, I don't think, I don't feel like you can really accurately. We, if someone's really, really good and does a lot of this and it's not very complicated, then you can have one person managing it, but it's two separate. It's very much two separate mixes. Again, sometimes on the same mixer with a separate controller. Um, but, uh, but, um, usually it's going to be two minds thinking about it again, the most advanced day ones can handle it, handle both of them. Um, and if it's not very complicated, but as soon as it gets remotely complicated, it needs to be two different people. Speaking of advanced, our friend from Norway is back again. Great to see you, Greg Kurta. Tell us something. Um, yeah, I would absolutely two two operators. They, they, they are totally different, totally different, uh, program. Um, and it, a lot of times you, you don't have time, especially with music and shooting concerts stuff, you don't have time to totally remix the whole thing. So what you can do is you can get stems from the, from the front of house guy. And just make sure that you have enough stems to cover yourself, you know, dry, uh, dry stems as well as as well as affected stems, because a lot of times they, you know, that front of house will put extra reverb on it. They they have a certain vocal thing that they do, and it's not it doesn't really work for the, you know, with picture, or you know stuff like that. So and also um, the, the Ronnie's Ronnie's concept of the the uh, the, the audience mic. I hang up. I hang an XY pair uh, up on the light bar, pointed at the audience, not at the stage. Just for, just for that for air for the for the ambience, the live feel. Excellent, Marty Atias. So the the two biggest things for me is um, who controls the mic preamp and and how is that going to get shared. So if you if you can use the same mixer or the same series of mixers, maybe one's bigger, one's smaller, then you can do gain sharing or gain splitting of the stage box preamps. That's really important. The other thing is um, dynamic range. And, and this is one of the reasons why you want to have a different person mixing for a broadcast who is in an isolated space. In the venue, you may have a dynamic range of 100 dB if you have a concert sound system, whereas on the stream, your total dynamic range may be 12, maybe 20, you know, but no more than that because 
you're sending out to a very, very different audience that's listening in a very different environment. And so it's a totally different mix. Carl. So, yeah, so you definitely want the two separate people, one in a separate room. As far as gain, so there's going to be probably at the stage box, you're going to have a monitor mixer as well. So a good way to do this is actually let the monitor mixer set all the gains and then the front of house and the broadcast mixer will simply just mix the level. So that's what the faders are for at the bottom. The gain knob, which essentially will be in the actual stage box, that'll be handled by the monitor mixer. That'll be the person sitting next to the stage and they will generally set all the levels of the gains because those monitor mixers have to go back to the performers on stage. So essentially, as long as they're not clipping, then you can pull down something if you want it quieter, of course. You can add effects if you want it quieter. And then as long as you've got a, you know, a Dante stage box or similar, then everyone can get their own clean feed and then they can mix to their own heart's content. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, I was going to mention on the split snake, because if you're splitting for front of house and then you're splitting for monitors um, and then you're splitting for live broadcast, that can become a big problem. The front of house is going to always take the... Uh, uh, primary spot on that. And then you should really, if you cannot get into a different room, be behind the speakers, be next to that monitor uh, monitor mixer, because then you can have a little bit of conversation back and forth, understanding what's what's going on there. But if you have to be front of house, get a really nice table and a really nice cloth so you can duck underneath and just put on your headphones, nice 50 millimeter drivers or better, and, uh, and listen to the sound underneath the table, because then you're going to kill as much of the uh, of the uh, the room sound as possible. Unless you had a quick follow up. Yeah, just just taking it as an example of a, of a dual system. Uh, we had a we did a pretty a show with a pretty large rock and roll band. Um, it was in a stadium with seventy thousand people. Front of house was, of course, the mixer was kind of in the middle of the of the outfield, <laughs> you know, that was there. Um, uh, that was there uh, mixing what they needed to do. All those stems were run to a. Um, production uh, uh, trailer that was pretty far outside the stadium um, running Pro Tools with the studio engineer for the um, uh, the band uh, was mixed, had preset everything both in rehearsal at the studio. They were rehearsing in a, in a stage somewhere off site. Um, so they, they kind of figured that all out um, and got that all working uh, in Pro Tools, then tweaked it during rehearsal while they're there. Um, and then so the stream, which had about a half million viewers, got to listen to something that was probably the best mix I've ever heard for a live event. And the audience in the stadium got a great, great experience as well. So that gives you kind of the, the full end as far out as it goes of not two people anywhere near each other, just completely set up in the again, the, the front of house had a lot of time to work on it. But the studio engineer who knew the band who works with them for the last decade got to spend you know weeks kind of figuring out exactly how it was going to sound. And that's going to get you the best, highest quality. All right. And don't forget, I mentioned it once before, but it's really critical now. We have a lot of questions in the queue. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get through them all, which means that your votes are mission critical here. So check out the the list of questions that are already in the queue and go ahead and add more. Uh, maybe that'll catch fire and we'll get a lot of votes for that and that'll get answered as well. But your votes are always important and very much so today. So make sure you do that. Let's go on to the next question. From Jonas Dotthold from Stuttgart, what would you like to see in a resume uh, curriculum vitae that you get for freelance video engineering positions? Carl's going to start us off. Carl? So if you're the one receiving them, so these are people applying, essentially I'd want a link or a a QR code on their CV um, going to a showreel, and that showreel shows 
if they're doing video engineering, they're going to be behind the scenes. So showing behind the scenes of events they've done. So showing the setup, showing them set up, showing them run the event, showing them pack down. So these kind of behind the scenes videos or photos of gigs they've done, essentially it's a show reel for um, crew. So that's kind of what you want to see. They can list off stuff they've done, but you actually want to see the stuff. You want to see the magnitude of the stuff they've done. Like, are they doing like a wedding? Are they doing like a concert? Are they doing that kind of stuff? So it gives you an idea of the magnitude of the kind of scale that they've done. And is this a multi-day event? Is this a half-day event? So they're the kind of things you want to see. And you won't be able to really see that if it's just text on a, on a piece of paper. Alex. I can't remember the last time I saw a CV. Like, I just don't, I don't remember the last time I saw anybody's resume ever. Uh, we ask people who they know. Um, if I'm looking for a camera operator, I ask, I, I'll hire a lead camera operator and tell, have him give me, you know, he or she give me six or eight names for four positions. We have some conversations with them. We put them in, but the, he, but that person, he or she is accountable for who he recommend, who, who they recommended, uh, to be there. Um, we ask our friends that we work with, uh, we ask other folks, but you know, we, I can't remember a time when we said, Hey, send us resumes, um, to be part of it. It's always been somebody that we knew that knew somebody. And that's how this business works, you know, for the most part. Um, so, I mean, definitely when we show people things, um, as Carl said, we show what we, if I'm showing somebody else that, uh, we'll show things that we worked on when we can. Um, but, uh, even with all the work that I've gotten, it's always been somebody said that, that I was good at it, or somebody said that our company was good at it. Um, but I haven't seen a, again, I haven't sent or seen a resume for decades. Let's go to the next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, what are five things to avoid when attending a drone show? <laughs> uh, Jeff Cohen. I'll, I'll give you my top one, which is let the pros do the drones during the drone show. Last night we had a great one, and you had the folks with Drone Envy, you know, flying their little tiny one drone, you know, and getting some, you know, I thought dangerously close. So when the drone show's going on, you know, park your drone. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, pick your spot for viewing carefully because you don't want to get a crick in your neck because unlike fireworks shows, the drones are up there continuously and they're constantly evolving. So you're going to be looking up at the same angle for a long period of time. Get a little further away because uh, it's a pretty large palette that they work in because uh, they don't want those drones running into each other, obviously. And they're making little designs and stuff that's designed to be viewed from a certain angle uh, because they're kind of working in a in a plane to create images. Uh, which don't look the same if you look at them from the side or from uh, underneath or from an angle that is not designed to be viewed from. And usually they will uh, design them so that they're a, a distance away from the audience, but you have to be on the right side of them to view them. So figure out where the audience is intended to be for that drone show and put yourself there. George Whittem. Um, don't wear a very tall hat. <laughs> I, I'd agree with that. Uh, I was going to show some footage of the one I attended last night, but we've got so many questions in that if somebody wants to see it tomorrow on the show, uh, pop in a question and I'll run it then. Uh, let's go to the next question now. Next question is from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Alexander wants to know what would cause the spacebar command to stop working for playback in DaVinci Resolve? This happens once in a while and I have never been able to figure it out. Restarting the app fixes it. Jeff Cohen's going to help us, Jeff. Yeah, to me, the clues at least are, are in the question. Now, what could? I mean, anything could, but the clues are you seem to imply it only happens in DaVinci and restarting the app fixes it. So 
the first clue is it's probably a bug in DaVinci. If it happened with other apps, then it may be, then you're down to the hardware or, or the OS, but sounds like it's the app. I, I assume you've checked their forms or contacted support. Uh, if you, you know, you want to look if other people are experiencing it or, or, or better yet, if it's a bug they are already aware of and just in the process of fixing, if not, contact them uh, to see if, you know, they can help you diagnose, give them some uh, logs uh, from the app to try and, uh, you know, so that they can fix it. But clues lead to it's the app. Next question. Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia, asking, I've got a Mac Studio with a large number of applications, and I'd like to configure a dedicated Mac Mini for the AV applications, Zoom, Dante, X32, etc. Should I max out the CPU, GPU, memory configuration, given it will probably be used for years? Alex, what to say you? Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, like, so you should, if you're going to actually use it for AV, so I, I buy a lot of Mac minis and um, the Mac minis that I buy that are just glue, um, I need them to run something very basic and it's probably going to do that for the next five years. I'm going to get eight gigs and the base, you know, set up M2 or whatever, maybe even an M1 and they'll work fine. But if I'm going to do any kind of AV work, I'm going to max them out um, because uh, that way they're going to, the longevity will last a lot longer and they're an incredible deal. Um, but you can't update it later. So if you're going to use any kind of AV tools, uh, any real AV tools on them, I would go ahead and max them out. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, oh dear, this machine has too much RAM. Uh, let's go to the next yeah, question. Exactly. From Samuel Nordvik in uh, Norway, do you have experience sending Dante over the internet with Dante Domain Manager using GPS clocking instead of trying to send the clocking signals over the internet? Carl's going to start us out. Carl? So Dante is essentially AES67 with a wrapper, and the wrapper has got some Dante control and it's got some PTPs, but it only works on a local network because of the PTP. So you need a PTP switcher. With, uh, so it won't work over the internet because PTP won't work over that. But AES67 is part of 2110. So 2110-30 is AES67. So it's the exact same audio information that's in Dante, but it works over the internet. So look into 2110 solutions if you want to do this because that's exactly what it is. So 2110-30 is the audio part of 2110. Um, Blackmagic can kind of do it, but there's um, AJA has some stuff and there's some much more expensive stuff from Sony. Sony has a whole line of 2110 stuff now, but that's kind of in the pro area. But it's the exact same audio channel. So the exact same zeros and ones that are in Dante for audio is the exact same. You know, you can actually convert Dante to 2110, of course, and back and forth. It just, Dante just puts that wrapper on it for the PTP and the control protocol that it likes. But that's only local network because of PTP. But 2110 is the solution if you're going over the internet. Uh, Alex. Specifically with Dante, we have made attempts to do this. Um, there have been some successful attempts to do it in the UK. Uh, these were between two universities at 300 miles or less, uh, clocking, as you said, clocking the GP, uh, GPS on either side. And they were able to successfully send it, but this is a university internet network, not general purpose internet. Um, to make this actually work. Now, one thing that um, has been proven successful in the past is using a private network like the Switch, um, which is going to have much more low, higher, you know, much higher uh, reliability and much lower latency and using MATI cards. So Nimbra is on either end uh, with MATI cards, again, clocked 
Um, and that has been that has proven successful for sending those over. I think that the maximum number for a Nimbra is about 448 channels uh, that can be sent you know, one way or the other um, that way. Um, and that can be done at, at least across the country, the U.S. country. Um, and uh, and so that those that's a more success. That's been proven to be a little bit more successful. But the Dante, as Carl said, Dante's not really built for that. And while they put it on their website about the success that happened in the UK. It's a very limited success and the variables are so limited, it doesn't really work in the real world. All right, next question. From George Whittem in Venice, California. How do you get Apple Photos to finish analyzing scenes, curating best photos, and detecting duplicates? It's been a month on a new Mac. <laughs> oh, George, you want to tell us a little more about this? Well, I'm, I'm really just trying to, you know, play Apple with everybody else and not use Google Photos for everything anymore. And uh, it's just not been a friction-free experience, and it's disappointing. And before I go to Apple and have them tell me to install the new OS or wipe my computer or create a new user account or the usual tech support stuff, I thought I would go here first before <laughs> I do all that crap that they tell you to do. Jeff Cohen, give us some help here. Yeah, the short answer is you do nothing. Uh, it's still working. It, it hasn't frozen or failed. I mean, there's reports, you know, you can see people, it's taken them two months and it does it. You're new, you dumped all these photos in there. The one tip I will give you is make sure your computer is not sleeping at night. Let it do all the work at night when you're not using the machine. So make sure it's never going to sleep. Screen can go off, obviously, but don't let it go to sleep. And what I have done, because I had this problem also, is... Uh, close all, you know, when you're done for the day, close all the apps, open photos only, just so it is the foreground app. It's not also having to run in the background. It's the foreground app. The computer doesn't sleep and then let it churn overnight. And that'll at least help it go a little quicker, but it's probably just still doing. And by the way, it's doing a lot of stuff. It's, it's doing face detection. It's doing, uh, object detection. It's doing a whole bunch of stuff that then you can search on. So it's almost certainly just still working. Shouldn't I still be able to see, though, all the photos while it's doing all that work? Absolutely. I'm not seeing, like, a humongous amount of my library, massive portion. It's I'm waiting well, for it to sync over the cloud, and I'm not well, seeing, that's, like, anything. That's a whole different question November. that you didn't ask. I mean, you absolutely should have all your photos there. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have nothing since November is in there, even though it's all on the iCloud. So, Uh-oh. Carl, can you help? Okay, so... Uh, how many photos are we talking about in the total library, George? Many tens of thousands. Okay. Ooh, are they, uh, they all the like thing... DSLR giant raster photos with no, millions all, of pixels? They're all iPhone. So the other so, thing is the the library that you have on your computer, you need to make sure that is your what's known as a system library. Only the system library will sync with iCloud. So you need to it'll have a little bracket next. When you take a look at all your libraries you can have, it has to say system library. And also you need to have an option ticked in preferences that says when you import, you add these to iCloud. That tick box also kind of refers to any, anything that comes in from iCloud. So it will work, but you need to make sure that the library you're looking at on your computer is actually your system library. It's a bit confusing, but if you just do option click, onto so have photos closed and then hold down option then click on it to start it will give you a list of all your libraries you only have one but next to it will say system library if it says that that's the one that's allowed to sync with iCloud all your other libraries are not allowed to sync with iCloud only one library is allowed um, then you want to make sure you have the import box ticked in options so that's 
It says uh, importing photos. These photos will be added to iCloud, and it says this is only available for system library. So you'll make sure that's ticked because it works the other way as well. So when the photos are syncing back from the cloud, that's the same as importing. Um, and then the other thing you can actually check is it will take time. Is log out of um, that computer completely. So if it's laptop, whatever, log out and then log back in. I've had this issue once before. Um, and all I had to do was just log out of everything and then log back in. Another way of doing it is And you're is talking log about in. logging out of iCloud, Carl, just to be clear. That's right. So yeah, yeah. Lo log out like you're about to sell your Mac to someone else and then log back in. That's probably the easiest way of saying it. Pretend you're going to sell that Mac and log out of everything you possibly can. Log back in, but make sure that before you log back in, you have all those boxes ticked and you make sure your system library and it will work. I have seen this problem once before, but logging out of iCloud and logging back in um, does help. Yep, looking on iCloud's prefer preferences or going to i the i the Photos app preferences, looking at the iCloud tab, it says iCloud features for those photos are only available in the system photo library. So uh, thank you for that. Chris Fenwick? You know, uh, George, what you may be experiencing is is the plague of really smart people trying to use Macs because sometimes we we do things the, the smart way because we understand everything and just letting the Mac do its thing. I understand that's what you're doing. Also, the whole analyzing thing, I what I find super interesting about photos is the fact that I can search for just general words. I can search for the word bridge. I can search for the word clouds. I can search for dog. And it'll find all the pictures of dogs. Um, but it'll also find dogs that are in videos that you have. And if you have a lot of content, it might it may just be taking a lot of time. Sometimes, I, I did this once. I was searching for dogs. I was like, well, why did it show me that image? Well, it's a video. I was like, well, there's no dog on that thumbnail. And then I hit play on the video. And it's a shot of my living room. And 10, 15 seconds into it, a dog walks through. So it's looking at every frame of that Crazy. video. No and analyzing what kinds of stuff is in it. So it may be just doing a lot of stuff, but it does. I will also say, Carl, uh, it is such a pleasure to have you here. You are a wealth of knowledge. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Greg Curta. Well, I, I, th I think there are some of us who are probably so dumb that it doesn't matter whether you're on a PC or a Mac, you still don't get it. Um, so, you know, I have a very, I've been, I've been trying to get photos to work for probably three years and uh, I just decided, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been with that at that stage with something I, very I, frustrating. I know, I know about that's something. the it wrong work answer. I know that's yeah. the wrong answer and I should, you know, I should get I, with it. I feel but, validated. But it's Greg. just, it's just too much. It's just too much. Uh, maybe maybe there's some of those photos that don't... And no, I'm not even going to say that. Let's move on to the next question. And it's coming in from Robert Linkroom from Belmont Shore, California. Regarding consistent audio output, what are the options about the Angry Audio C4 Chameleon? And there's a link to it. It's about U.S. dollars, $1,000. Also, have you seen the new Angry Audio Rave broadcast mixer worth about $2,000? Mitch Hill, start us off. Angry Audio makes really cool stuff for broadcasters, and the original intent of the C4 Chameleon was to place it on the uh, monitoring audio channel at broadcast stations because you can't listen to delayed audio while you're a DJ talking on the radio. So it's a low-latency, analog-ish uh, device uh, that does basically the same thing that a big processor would do. Uh, this particular device is cool. 
because it sounds really good at the price point because if you compare it to a, a big time device like an Omnia 9 or Omnia 11, um, it sounds almost as good. And those things are about $11,000. And the other cool thing about the C4 is it's designed by Cornelius Gould, who also designed the Omnia. So um, I uh, I give it a big thumbs up. I, I'd like to put it on my stereo. Catfish, please send me one. <laughs> Roddy Hopsoy. Yeah, uh, actually, this is uh, this is uh, all, all that uh, Mitchell says. Uh, I'm I'm looking into kind of more upgradable software-based solutions because streaming is uh, not necessarily real-time all the time. So uh, using this in a real-time uh, application would be nice, uh, but my needs and many with me uh, do not need this box specifically. And regard to the mixer, it looks really cool. And, oh, George wants to weigh in on this, George. I haven't used any of his stuff, but I've known her tales of this man. Um, but the uh, the one that's interesting to me is the monitor one that's just for headphones. So that there's a C4 type thing that's headphone monitoring specifically. And I think a lot of uh, people that are headphone addicted, and people meaning voiceover actors I know, um, maybe could benefit from that. I know one who actually will ride his headphone monitor level to get the desired effect in his headphone while he's performing. And this could really uh, save a lot of busted pots. I replace that pot every year because he wears it out. This might be an interesting way to remedy that situation. So I want to check one out. Is, is that the sign of angry mixing or something? He's breaking that many pots? Interesting. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, there are several audio over IP solutions that turn a device, a phone or a tablet, into a speaker. How might I send audio to a phone so that it's a mic input for apps? For example, injecting audio to a phone, streaming to Instagram. Carl, can you help us out? So in iOS, this can't happen because of sandboxing. So it can happen on a Mac, but it can't happen on iOS on an iPad or an iPhone. Um, jailbreak back in the day, like, you know, iOS 3 or iOS 4, you could jailbreak and do this back in the day when you could. But I think since iOS 5 or iOS 7, when jailbreak became nearly impossible, um, this hasn't been able to be done. Um, Android can do this. So if you want to do it, you want a mobile device, Android tablets can do this. Um, Android phones can do this. But iOS is sandbox. So no one app can talk to another app like that. So it's nothing like audio hijack on the iOS, essentially. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, the only way that you can really do it is to kind of do a piggyback method on there. And that would in, uh, require something like, you know, the IK Multimedia iRigs. Uh, that could uh, that could patch through the older older devices. It makes it easier, especially ones that do have the old analog uh, jacks instead of the lightning jacks. Uh, it's not impossible, but once again, it is a workaround, and uh, you definitely need to have it hard connected in rather than going from phone to phone. Uh, Jeff Cohen. And it does depend on the app that you want to use. If the app will recognize uh, and what it would consider an external interface, I mean, you can plug in a USB interface into it using the adapter. And you can even get, uh, if you can see this, you know, a little uh, dongle like this. This is from Sound Blaster. It's the same thing, effectively, USB. So you get use the adapter. And then you probably can't see this, but just like the standard headphone and mic input, which obviously you can send anything into that mic input, similar to the iRig. Now, some apps don't play nice. Zoom on the iPhone 
will mock you and and pretend to start using this and then all of a sudden mid conversation or switching rooms or something it completely loses it and will never let you get back to that interface so it really does depend on the app alex yeah so the way that i've done this is using the um uh, Bluetooth IO adapter, the Dante Avio adapter um, from Studio, uh, from I'm sorry, from Audinate. Um and this is a uh, it's a little it looks like a little pill. It's uh, Ethernet over um, it's power over Ethernet. Oh, and Jason has one there. He sh- he'll show it to you there, and um, so that shows up as a Bluetooth headset to your phone, any phone. It'll just show up and it'll go. Oh, that's a Bluetooth headset, and now you're able to pipe. Dante to it. <laughs> so is it a, it is, a, is it a, a complete bypass and you're wiring in? No, but it actually works very cleanly. And um, I've used, the only reason I own this, this little pill is to bypass um, the restrictions that all these companies have with, you know, whether it's Clubhouse or, or um, uh, any of these other ones, because it just looks like a headphone to them. It just thinks it's a headphone, uh, but you're able to pass a full mix uh, into that, into that headphone that way. And Alex, have you had the same problem with any apps just uh, not using it? Because with these interfaces, likewise, Zoom sees it as a headset. All of these apps just see this as a standard headset. It doesn't think it's the same as your AirPods or anything else. It doesn't it doesn't have any knowledge that it's anything other than another headset. It's it's that's how it's doing the handshake. And it's worked with every platform that we've tried it with. Uh, Ronnie, real quick. Alex stole my thunder once again. Uh, we, we used it several times. Uh, this is a really nice solution to inject audio into apps and uh, highly I will, recommend it. I will say that if you jump into Clubhouse using this adapter, all the questions, no matter what they're talking about, all the questions will be, how are you doing your audio? <laughs> like, 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 like Because you're using a, suddenly you're using a studio mic and you show up in Clubhouse and it's, you know, with all the processing and everything else, you sound completely different than everybody else in the entire platform. And Mitch, real quick. I take a trip over to the uh, aforementioned Angry Audio. They have a device that does basically the same thing. It's not, it's not uh, a Dante, but uh, it gets uh, audio in and out of a uh, iPhone real well. All right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, on the panel for a great set of answers today. We've had a lot to discuss. Today is Audio Day, which means that we are going to be taking a deeper dive today into microphones. I think probably one of the first questions that anybody who wants to do any kind of serious audio asks, particularly when they start investigating microphones, is why are there so many? What do they do? What's the point of having literally hundreds and hundreds of different types of microphones? out there. And the second thing they ask is, what's the best one? Which is one of those contextual questions that it's almost impossible to answer unless you know a lot more. We have assembled on here an amazing panel of experts who've been in the audio business for a long time and know all the answers to these questions. So I'm sure uh, we've gotten already a lot of questions about microphones. I was wondering if anybody in the panel uh, wanted to raise a hand and start off with some of your thoughts, particularly about what somebody's just starting out looking at microphones what are the things that they must know in order to make good decisions and i know we talk a little bit about polar patterns and you know what should you go with an omni should you you know are cardioids better and for what uh what, what are these shotgun things how do they work there's just so many topics that come into play when you're looking for your first microphone. So one of our experts has been doing this a long time is Marty Adius. He's on the panel here. So Marty, what is your primer for someone getting started with microphones? Well, um, 
let's start off at the basics, shall we? Because uh, it's often useful to understand the how and the why that helps, uh, helps us understand the what. So let me just switch my view here. Um, so microphones are like the most important piece of your audio gear because it is the, the, the entry point into your sound system. Uh, if you're not collecting good audio from a good microphone, then you're garbage in, garbage out, basically, uh, in degrees. So you might get pristine audio, you might get okay audio, but the better your microphone and the better the position of the microphone, the better off you are. And it is a acoustic to electric transducer. And what does that mean? It means it is uh, changing acoustic energy into electrical impulses so that you can manipulate it, right? And, uh, you know, that coincidentally is the exact opposite from what a loudspeaker does. It takes electrical impulses and converts those into acoustic energy. So um, let's take a look at... Oh, why isn't this working? Okay. Hang on. Uh, Okay, so, um, right, so there are condenser microphones and there are, uh, dynamic microphones and a condenser microphone, uh, they work a little bit differently. Um, a dynamic microphone, uh, like I think this one here, yeah, uh, hmm. That slide is missing. Okay, so a dynamic microphone takes acoustic energy, the air pressure and changes in air pressure moves a diaphragm that moves a coil of wire that's suspended in a magnet and that creates an electrical impulse. A condenser microphone and, and a dynamic microphone does not need any kind of power. Condenser microphone needs what we call phantom power, and that's because instead of moving a diaphragm with a coil attached to it, it's actually changing the uh, two charged plates like a capacitor and the different distance in between them and that creates an electrical charge. Uh, very basic uh, concept there. Um, uh, right, no dynamic power. Oh, this is, the, this is the graphic I was looking for. This is a dynamic microphone and you can see that coil of wire is moving in the magnet. All right, and so uh, condensers tend to have a higher output level um, they need phantom power, and they can be either large or small diaphragms. And there's a difference between uh, small diaphragm microphones and large diaphragm microphones. So like often in studio settings, you'll see large diaphragm microphones. We're using, uh, a lot of us here are using large diaphragm microphones. And, uh, you know, large diaphragm microphone will have a lower self-noise and a higher sensitivity. Um, smaller Smaller microphones can handle higher sound pressure levels. Uh, they will have a wider frequency response than a large dynamic microphone. And uh, smaller microphones will have a higher dynamic range uh, than a smaller micro than a larger microphone. And now we get into polar patterns, which is probably the thing that is, you know, we most often think about microphones. Well, what kind of microphone do I want to use? Do I want to use an omni microphone, a cardioid microphone, a supercardioid, a hypercardioid, a shotgun microphone? Well, let's take a look at all of those. An omnidirectional microphone just simply picks up 
audio from any direction equally well, right? Um, a cardioid microphone, and most handheld vocal microphones are cardioid microphones. Most microphones that we use generally uh, these days tend to be cardioid microphones, and they primarily pick up from the front of the microphone as you talk into the front of the microphone. But the thing about these is, and equally as important is, the back of the microphone rejects the sound. So when you think about what kind of microphone do I want to use, you want to think about what direction is my sound source relative to the microphone and what direction are my noise sources in relation to the microphone. So if you're on, if you're a singer on stage, you're, you're singing into a microphone and you've got a floor monitor at your feet in front of you, uh, if you position the microphone properly, then the sound from that floor monitor is going to be ignored by that microphone. Um, if you're in an interview setting and you've got a noisy air vent in the room somewhere, you position your microphone properly and the microphone will simply reject that, the noise from that, from that sound. Um, Directional microphones have what we call a proximity effect, and that is when we get close to the microphone, um, the bass response will pick up. And in this, in this curve, <coughs> you can see that this is the, um, hang on, this is the, Uh, if you're 12 inches or so from the microphone, you're going to get a slight roll-off in this particular microphone. And if you're closer, like three inches, you'll see this kind of curve. And if you're really close, within a quarter inch, you'll see the bass response picking up. Um, that is what we call the proximity effect. And it you see that it starts from about 1,000 hertz down. Uh, then we get into supercardioid and hypercardioid microphones, and you'll see that a hypercardioid microphone has a slightly narrower pickup angle in the front, which we call the acceptance angle. Um, but you see the um, uh, see this lobe in the back. Uh, that is the the rear rejection angle, or or that is called the rear lobe. And the more directional the microphone, the larger the rear lobe. And what that is, sound will be picked up by the microphone from the rear. Uh, and hypercardioid is more sensitive to rear sound than supercardioid, which is even more sensitive than a standard cardioid. So we want to be conscious of that when we're positioning our microphones. And then we get into another uh, polar pattern, another type of microphone called a figure eight or bi-directional microphone. And this is actually one of the earliest microphone designs. And it picks up sound from the front and the rear equally well. And I'll put a little asterisk in there. And it rejects sound almost totally from the sides. Right? And so, uh, and... One thing to note is that the sound from the rear will be the opposite polarity from the sound from the front. And that is how it gets such great side uh, rejection. And that little asterisk that I mentioned is that not all figure eight microphones sound the same in the, from the back 
as it does from the front. So if you're talking into the front of a figure eight microphone, you will get clean, clear sound. If you turn that around, you might get a darker sound. And by that, I mean, you won't get as many highs. And that depends on the microphone, the cost of the microphones. The, the better figure eight microphones will sound the same, but I've, I've come across a lot where the sound into the rear is darker. And I, you know, sometimes I will use that to good effect. Um, one example is uh, miking a, a, an organ's Leslie cabinet. A Leslie cabinet is a big speaker cabinet that has a woofer that spins around and then a, a horn that spins around on the top. And I would put a figure eight microphone with the front pointing up towards the horn for the high frequencies, the back of the microphone pointed down for the woofer. And I can pick up both of them with just one microphone and sound really interesting. Uh, other, other applications is you could put people sitting on either side of the microphone and, and pick them up as well. Uh, so when we look at each and you know, we consider each of these different polar patterns, um, we look at the coverage angle from the front of the microphone. And you can see here that as we get closer to more directional microphones, the coverage pattern in the front gets narrower and the maximum rejection angle uh, changes as well. So omnidirectional microphone has no rejection angle. A cardioid microphone has a rejection angle of about 180 degrees um, behind the mic. A supercardioid, 126. A hypercardioid, 110. And these are typical figures. They're not exact. Uh, the rear rejection angle um, uh, gets less with the more directional. So you see 6 dB for a hypercardioid, and this is coming directly from the back of the microphone. Uh, the sensitivity of ambient sound in the room changes as well with different polar patterns. And the distance factor is a relative um, uh, to an omnidirectional microphone. With a more directional microphone, you can get further away from your sound source. And the directional factor, the distance factor, is an indication of how far you can get and get uh, and pick up uh, sound equally equally well. Then we get into uh, shotgun microphones. So shotgun microphones are uh, kind of an interesting uh, type of microphone. Uh, they are called line source microphones. Um, they come in different lengths. Uh, the longer the length, the more direction, the greater the distance factor. So you can get farther away with a long shotgun microphone. Um, but you want to be careful where you use these indoors, especially in, in, in sort of reverberant or reflective uh, rooms. Uh, you want to use a short shotgun microphone, will perform better than a long shotgun microphone. And these have rear lobes that you can see back here as well. And um, then there are microphone arrays, right? So you can take multiple microphones and arrange them in certain ways to pick up uh, stereo sound with different characteristics all the way up into spatial sound and with this ball here, you can see every one of those dots is a microphone on that sphere. Here's an Ambio microphone over here. Um, 
and you know we can we can spend another show or another several shows just on microphone arrays and how they work lavalier microphones uh, come in different sizes and shapes you can get square ones that are front address um, you can get uh, very small end address microphones the one on the top left there that's a Sankin cost 11 the uh, the sure m m uh, I think it's WL185 is a rather large uh, directional cardioid microphone for lavalier work. It's about the size of your thumb. Uh, then you've got uh, head-worn microphones, right? So they wear over your ear. We're very used to seeing those here on office hours. And, uh, you know, you can arrange these when you're doing interviews. Uh, an omnidirectional microphone can, you know, put one in each, and they could actually be picked up by the person opposite them, and that causes timing issues. But you can use a cardioid lavs, um, which will give each person more isolation. Uh, you can use shotgun microphones mounted on the floor uh, to pick up each one, uh, and then you can do... Uh, Shotgun microphones overhead. This is a show that I did a few weeks ago. And this is interesting. You can see that I've used three microphones, one for each person. And I chose shotgun microphones over lavaliers because this was a fast and furious interview. There, People were coming in and out all the time. There was no time to be mounting up lavaliers. Uh, so I, I chose this arrangement because... Um, each person was talking into a specific microphone, and uh, and they were also uh, I also arranged these so that uh, each person was sort of being rejected by microphones from other people. Uh, then there are windscreens for microphones, and and these comes in, in all sizes and shapes. You can get foam windscreens for lavalier microphones. Uh, you can get furries. Um, I've got a whole assortment here. Um, uh, you have foam windscreens. This one has two layers. Uh, this is a more open cell in the middle and a more uh, dense in the, on the outside. Uh, the thing about windscreens is to create a dead air space uh, surrounding the microphone uh, after buffering the, the, the wind and airspace uh, around it. So you can get... Uh, uh, let me go back to my regular screen here right so uh this is a a windscreen with a furry cover and there's a, a basket inside of it and you you can put the shotgun microphone in here and it gets suspended in a dead airspace um there's a smaller version of it uh you can get furry covers that can go over your microphone if you have just a basket like this one right and this this furry cover goes over it and um then there's the larger ones, right? So this is a very large microphone for high wind, uh, wind cover for high wind situations. And uh, then there is uh, the Zeppelin, what we call the Zeppelin. And this has a suspend, this is a stereo shotgun microphone, by the way. It suspends the microphone uh, in a shock mounted array and then the cover goes over it, uh, suspends the microphone inside, and then a cover goes over the back. And so you have the complete Zeppelin array. And then over this, you can put furry 
uh, covers over it. So I'm going to stop there. I have more, but let's uh, let's go to other people and questions. Thanks. That's a great primer. So everybody, um, this is why we're here to help you understand the whole thing. And I, I will say, I, I've run into more problems with audio on sets for people who are starting in the business than anything else. It seems like everybody, because they can see video issues and things like that, they feel more comfortable in diagnosing audio being something that you must listen to and you can't actually see it, tends to confuse people more. I'm going to put a couple of people in the panel here in the spots, or at least one, uh, which is to say that if you were starting out and you had to choose just maybe two or three microphones, where would you start? And because Greg hasn't been here in a long time, I think I'll put him on the spot all the way from Norway uh, and say, Greg, if you were a, a beginning practitioner and you wanted to go out and record some audio, what are the, the two or three types of mics that you would go to first to give you some flexibility in the kinds of things that you could address? Okay, I, I, I think first of all, you have to you would have to figure out what types of things are you, do you want to do? Do you want to record music? Do you want to record dialogue? Do you want, you know, do you want general, uh, ambience recording? Because those would, that would play a huge, a huge part in what you would, you would get. Now, for me, since most of my, my work has been, uh, you know, in dialogue or in, in motion pictures generally, um, I, I think everybody should have a good dynamic mic, you know, at the very least, a, like a Shure SM58 or something. You know, you can go, you can go any anywhere from there. I have a, I, I like this uh, these Audix. Uh, Look, at least two for, of our panels had one within reach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so th that would be one, and then and then for for condensers, for me, uh, I would have a I would have a shotgun, and I would have a um, either a cardioid cardioid or a hypercardioid. For a shotgun, if I could actually, if I could only have one mic, what I would I would what I would take is the Sanken CS3. Um, because that mic sounds so good on everything, and it doesn't suffer from that um, typical shotgun problem uh, of of creating more reverb inside a inside a reverby space because it's actually three capsules that are in that that are in that shotgun. Um, so, so in if you went in that direction and got the CS3, what are the couple of things you would have, go, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I only have this? Because every mic has things it's really good at, but some things it doesn't do well. Like that would, hung around somebody's neck as a lavalier, that would be a big fail. But what, what are the kinds of things that, that that mic wouldn't do for you? It wouldn't, it wouldn't allow me to... It wouldn't allow me to get loud sounds in a close-up way. It wouldn't allow me to handle a lot of SPL, in other words, sound pressure level. Um, Excellent. You know, if I was recording gunshots or stuff like that, you know, you, you want a dynamic up close for that. Your, your typical condensers just aren't going to handle that. Perfect. Um, That's what I was trying to get to the people who may be coming in new and want to trying to learn this. This is why we have so many different kinds of microphones because you find, and I'm going to ask that same question to Carl Asmussen because you're sure. in Norway and he's down in Australia. So let's get a global perspective here. Carl, if we were to come to you and say, what are the, you know, the two or three that I need to have? And are there any differences from what Greg just told us? So yeah, there is a question coming up that's very similar to this, um, but essentially it is. Like, microphones are tools. They're tools to convert 
um, acoustic pressure waves into electrical energy. Um, and just like a carpenter, a carpenter has a hammer, has a saw, has a screwdriver, microphones are just like that. So a microphone being like a carpenter's tools, you know, you can't, you can't saw a piece of wood with a hammer. And it's just like, you know, you can't do a lot of things. Like you can't use an SM58 to record a decatry. So this is not going to happen. So you have different tools to do different jobs. The more you, the more you do, the more you get involved with audio and the more you apply yourself to solving problems, if you're recording a local band or something, um, you'll figure out which microphones are for which job. So which microphones to have for the overheads on the drums and which microphone to have in the bass, you know, the, the bass drum, the kick. Um, they're two very different microphones, but they both will hang out with the drums. So you will learn these kind of things. Uh, you'll learn from experience working with other people. You can use YouTube, find out what other people are doing. Um, you can experiment. Experiment is actually the name of the game. To experiment, though, you do need a bit of a range of tools. So you need a, you need one of every kind of microphone. Now, there are there is a bit of a misnomer with Omnis. So there's Omnidirectional, the pattern, which Marty was talking about. Then there's Omnidirectional, um, the transducer. So... Most manufacturers only make one true Omni. We call them a true Omni because it's it's a very particular type of microphone. But this is Omni because of a it's Omni pattern because of the way the capsule is designed. It's not Omni pattern by design. It's not that wasn't the intention. So Sennheiser has one. Neumann has one capsule, but they put into a few different microphone housings. But it's the same capsule. Um, nearly every a Behringer has just one. Um, Earthworks has just one. So they all have. And Sanken has just one. So they all have one true Omni. So what a true Omni is, it's the front of the surface of the, so they can be dynamic or they can be um, condenser. So a true Omni doesn't have to be. It's actually the, the physical design of the actual microphone. And I think a true Omni is one thing you want. So I have a Behringer B5, which is a true Omni. Um, the, I believe the 8020 from Sennheiser is a true Omni. Um, you'll see that used in decatries. The M50, of course, from Neumann back in the day, and the M150 now is a it's a different flavor of it. It has a true Omni capsule, but it has a it has a bit of a different flavor to it because it actually has some other hardware around the capsule. Um, and I think the 183 from Neumann is a true Omni. So true Omnis are something you do want if you want to do an AB pair, and that's kind of important. So that's one thing that you want to look out for. Um, a dynamic mic that can handle high SPL. This is a good example would be Shaw. So Shaw's kick drum, which is I think the SM62, that's a kick drum mic. That thing can go up to about 180 decibels, roughly, 170, 180. So you can actually record a jet engine taking off. Um, there are a handful of microphones like that that can go over 150 um, decibels. Um, so you can't just put an attenuator on a microphone either. So when you see... The, when you see the specifications, and this is another thing, if you're going to get a microphone, you're going to have to learn how to read the technical specifications for that microphone. You have to understand what impedance is. You have to understand that a microphone with an impedance of 60, and, um, and this microphone I'm using has a microphone has an impedance of 600. So you have to understand where they work. That's because my preamp has an impedance of 10,000. I can use this. But if I, had, if I was using um, a Neve preamp, that where I put the switch in and it has a impedance of 300 on the preamp and I'm using a 600 mic, that's not going to work. So you also have to learn how to read the technical specifications um, and understand um, that every microphone has to be matched up with a preamp in some kind. USB mics, of course, have them built in. Um, understand the difference between um, uh, electric condenser 
can, so electric condensers, what's in your iPhone? That's a microphone at the type that's in your iPhone. Um, electric condensers also are the type of microphones that you put on top of a camera. They're all kind of electric condensers, same that you find in an old video camera. A condenser microphone, which we talked about before, they can be large diaphragm or small diaphragm, but they're usually going to be about um, half an inch generally in size. Once you go below that, it's going to be an electric condenser, um, which is a different kind of microphone. It can be high-quality one. Earthworks has high-quality electric condensers, and Neumann now has uh, one high-quality electric condenser microphone in their range. But a lot of the electric condensers you find out there, they can be in the they're lovely lav mics that are like $15 on Amazon. They're going to be a cheap electric condenser. They require power, but they don't require as much power. So they, like they require maybe 9 volt. That will come from the body, you know, the battery pack um, or the body pack. The other, so if you're going to have just a handful of microphones, a dynamic microphone um, of any kind, really, SM57, SM58, any really dynamic microphone that has a impedance of around 150 to 300, then you want a condenser, you want a true omni, if you can. As I said, Behringer make one for about 150 bucks. So you want a true omni, um, pick which brand you want, most only just have one. They're going to range from about $2,000 down to about $200 depending on what you want. True Omnis, are, if you get two of them, then you can do Space Omnis. Um, they are a lot of fun to actually experiment with. They have no, there's absolutely no proximity effect with these. It's the only microphones that don't have any proximity effect. Um, so you can actually do some pretty crazy stuff with symbols, putting them in under things. There's a lot of things you can do with this microphone because it doesn't change and they're usually quite flat. So they're quite good. Um, another thing I would also suggest is get a measurement microphone. These can be between $100 and $1,000, but you want a real-time analyzer, so this can be in software or hardware version. But a measurement microphone can actually tell you what's kind of really happening um, for a particular instrument, and you could find out whether it's that instrument that's causing uh, a peak in a certain frequency or it's your microphone. So having a microphone you know is flat, then you can kind of profile all your other microphones and to know which microphones have um, certain characteristics. So you can you can almost instantly profile certain microphones by um, recording the same thing, recording the same instrument, same voice, one through a measurement microphone, which would be very flat, no character. And then you have all your character in a large condenser or a dynamic microphone, and then just compare them. By comparing them, you now you'll understand why certain microphones are used on a female voice, a male voice, are used for loud vocals like rock music, are used for spoken word. And you, the way you do this is just record all of them or what you have on the same source and then A-B comparison and go, this Amazing. one sounds better for speaking and this one sounds better for music. That's what you have to do. I have to admit, I've had so much fun reading the chat here as, as everybody has been talking through here. The one that caught my mind first, George Wood has said, and you can use the EV, the Electrovoice 635A as a hammer. That was one of the microphones that I had in my bag for decades. The point he's making, though, is that different kinds of microphones have different robustness and longevity. Sometimes some of those mics go into something like a camera bag that you might be tossing in a plane or something like that, because no matter what happens to that bag, it's likely going to be able to be picked up and it'll still work regardless of what it goes through. Uh, we have had a ton of things. Uh, Courtney, you want to weigh in real quick? He's on the next side of the world in Hollywood, uh, and then we'll get to questions as fast as we can. All right, one type of microphone that really wasn't mentioned, uh, and it's kind of unique, and you're using one now. You're soaking in it, Bill, uh, is the, uh, the Sennheiser MKH series, which is an RF condenser microphone. It uses a different technology than standard condenser. It uses the uh, it uses a symmetrical diaphragm uh, rather than a singularly polarized diaphragm. 
And the thing that they're good for, if you're using microphones outdoors, if you're going to be using things, a condenser microphone in a high humidity situation, a lot of times the conventional condensers, which just have an FET preamp and a, and a capsule uh, with a uh, capacitive diaphragm in it, uh, will short out and get crackly. It, it won't work well in a high humid situation. The RF condensers are pretty much immune to humidity. So if you're going to be using it outdoors, it, it basically uses the capacitance in a symmetrical diaphragm to modulate an FM frequency around eight kilo, eight megahertz. And then that frequency is demodulated. Uh, that FM frequency is demodulated within the microphone back to audio and gets back out. And that way, it doesn't have a lot of the problems. It's very low self noise. Uh, so you get a very low self noise and you get a lot of immunity to any type of uh, changes in the atmospheric humidity that can affect the uh, capacitance of most uh, most condenser microphones. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to bring up. The MKH series, they're kind of phasing them out, It's uh, but they last a long time. I have uh, Sennheiser 415s that have been around 50 years, and they still sound quite good. Yeah. Uh, George, real quick. And then just in a completely different microphone design, this is an Earthworks microphone. That's now that's that's really a, a dialogue microphone, which is very weird for Earthworks. But you'll notice the capsule on this thing is really small. It's really, really abnormally small compared to, well, a 635A, for example, the hammer mic. Um, but it's it's unique in that it, because it has such a tiny capsule, they say it's very fast, meaning the microphone can respond to transients extremely, extremely quickly. And um, that's one unique, very, that's a mic that doesn't fit the description of most everything we've talked about. The only dis disadvantage of a really small capsule is the self-noise of the mic will go up as the capsule shrinks in diameter, smaller and smaller and smaller. This one has the same self-noise as a Sennheiser MKH-416 which we consider to be quite acceptable for just about any, any kind of voiceover work or, you know, broadcast. So um, anyway, just a, another data point. Moving on. If you've been watching this and listening, now you know why most of us, when somebody says the work mi word microphone, we raise our hands and go, yes, I have a problem. I keep buying them and I will never stop buying them. And my collection keeps growing and growing and growing. It's because there's so many of these tools that solve specific problems for specific people who have gotten to the point where they understand how all this technology works. Well, let's dive into our uh, into our questions. We have quite a few of them. So, Courtney. Here's one from I'm sorry, Courtney. Yeah. Mitch. Excuse me just a second. Here's one from David Brady, and it's gone. Okay, let's jump to Robert Shoji in Los Angeles. Uh, what are your two to three most uh, must-have microphones and why? Uh, let's start with Ronnie Hofsaway over in Trompsu, and we'll go from there. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess something happened. Uh, oh, we got something weird going on in the back. Uh, I see Marty here. Marty, go ahead. Well, I... I've raised my hand for the other question, but um, if you had to have two or three must-have microphones, it's really hard to say because different applications call for different kinds of microphones. If you're, you know, if you're doing ENG field work for news, uh, you know, or or field production uh, for portable use, you'd want to have a really good shotgun microphone, a 416. Um, the uh the the sankin uh cos3 uh 3e 
you want to have uh, good lavalier microphones. You want to have a handheld microphone. But if you're doing conference work, it would be a completely different set. If you're doing music work, it would be a completely different set. If you're doing voiceover work, it would be a completely different set. Okay, uh, let's go on to Ron. No, wait a second. I'm I'm confused here because things jumped around a little bit. Uh, let's go to John Preto now. John had wanted to weigh in on this. Yeah, they moved the question down at least on on panel view. Um, I I think I understand what Dave's want want and wanting to do here. And and what I use for this is just web cameras. So any of the web cameras, the Nest, the Ring, or the Wise cameras are perfect for this. And the nice thing about that is. They've got AI in the back end in the cloud, and so you can train the systems so it knows if the dog is barking, it knows if people are talking, or if it knows if it, it's just noise or wind, it, it can differentiate those sounds, and that comes in really useful for notification if somebody's messing around my house, my house I know it immediately. I think that's yeah, what that, Dave's trying to do. Yeah, that's interesting that now that uh, this new... AI and large learning models and everything else are being put into sound, and we're getting some new technology out of this. Carl Asmussen. Yeah, so for what Dave's asking, if you want to use it outdoors, um, you can have sacrificial mics. So if it's under anointing, it's not going to get rained on too heavily. You may just get a bit of moisture. Um, you'd want to condense. So essentially, a good one would probably be just a lav mic, to be honest. A lav mic... You can put it in a little plastic bag, but just a lav mic, sacrificial lav mic, um, it's omnidirectional. It's usually very sensitive. Um, it doesn't require too much. You know, you just have it running into a body pack. You just have it running into a converter. A phantom power converter will need some power. Um, but as long as you can keep the wires out of the rain, you know, um, I'd, I'd suggest a sacrificial lav mic. You know, you can put one up pretty much every year and it, it'll be fine. It'll, it'll be very sensitive, um, especially if you put it into a nice preamp. Um, the other type of mic um, would be a boundary mic. Um, and this is where you'd want to permanently attach it to, you know, the ceiling underneath, you know, underneath that awning. Um, and that'll actually pick up sound a lot better because it actually is the entire awning to pick up sound. So a boundary mic is sacrificial. These are all going to be sacrificial. There are some weatherproof mics, of course, but they're all usually dynamic. Um, you'd want to condense if you want to pick up, you know, sound to the neighborhood. So a boundary mic or a sacrificial lavalier mic. Okay, Marty? Yeah, boundary microphones are, are really nice, although you really want to make sure that you've got one that is going to be weather resistant. Uh, and as Carl was saying, a lavalier microphone, like um, this is the Countryman B3, and they advertise this this test that they do where they actually sub submerse it in Coca-Cola, which is corrosive as well as wet, uh, and it and it survives. So uh, that's something that you could actually just put out even in the rain, uh, and you might want to put a, a, some sort of a windscreen on it so that you can uh, control wind noise, uh, a furry windscreen for something. And that will also provide some sort of uh, uh, rain protection on it. And you can get uh, windscreens for boundary microphones as well. Excellent. Let's go to the next question. And it's a reflection of something we talked about before, but a couple of other people want to weigh in on it. So. Mitch? It's uh, from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California. What are your two to three must-have microphones and why? So again, we touched on this, but Ronnie, your thoughts? Yeah, the first one is uh, the absolute uh, default one, whatever you want to do. Uh, if a person wants to speak into something, the SM57 from, uh, 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 sorry, the SM58 from uh, Shure is the right one to do. And um, as other 
persons have said before me, it really depends on what you're trying to do. But a nice level air, which you can put on a person to to gather uh, their voice in a in a good manner, that's important. And of course, uh, a shotgun of some kind. Um, we have defaulted with um, uh, Sennheiser uh, 914 for uh, both stage work. We can use them at overheads at drums. We can use it uh, at the conference. And this microphone in, uh, specifically uh, handles uh, a, a lot of sound pressure up to, I think, almost 160 uh, decibels, which is really, really uh, important when you are uh, getting the 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 drums and uh, and the overheads and the uh, cymbals uh, specifically. But you can also use it on a conference table and, and point it at the people that are uh, speaking. So very, um, uh, very important to choose microphones that you can use for different stuff when you're starting up so that you have a flexibility in what you're going to uh, record. And I know you said 57, and the 57 and 58 are the same basic capsule, same basic form. One has a windscreen. You normally see it on stage vocals and things like that, that round ball at the top. But I think with that ball off, isn't it essentially the same as the 58? So it's they're basically the same technology. Mitch? Yeah, my preferred instrument is my voice because I do voiceover work. And uh, going for my favorite top three from the top, uh, the guy you see behind me, that's a U87. Uh, I bought it in 1978. I know it intimately. I know to play it like an instrument. I uh, have it matched up with a uh, Neve 8801. So I have the very best processing I can afford and the very best microphone I can afford. That's at the top of the chain. Uh, the secondary mic, you can't see it right here, is my 414. And it does pretty much the same as the U87. It's just a little more uh, expendable, I guess is the best word to use. And it's matched up with an Aphex channel. And then my everyday mic, like most people are saying, is the world's most popular microphone, the SM58. So uh, all three of those uh, cover most all situations. I would never take my U87 out to do a DJ gig somewhere. <laughs> uh, Carl. So I would actually come down with just one mic package, and that would be a drum mic package. I usually come with about seven mics. You'll have two, you get two um, condensers. They're pencil condensers. You'll get usually three or four mics that are essentially SM58, well, technically SM57s. Um, they're usually just at a different housing, so they can clip onto the side of a drum. And you'll get one very high-pressure level um, bass drum microphone, like the uh, the SM62 from Shaw. So you can look at Shaw's, and they've got their whole set. You can look at Sennheiser, Behringer, the T-Bone. They've all got these drums, and they usually come in seven or eight, usually seven mics. That's actually what I'd start with. You can record nearly anything. You can record a conference you know, with the two uh, condensers just as on the podium. Um, you can record nearly any music. You can record guitar amps. You can record vocals. You can record live vocals into one of the Tom mics. You can record um, studio vocals into one of the condensers. So I would suggest look at getting something like a two, $300, maybe up to $1,000, depending on how much money you want to spend, on a seven-piece drum mic set. That'll set you up for nearly anything at any pressure level. And then from there, you'll know what you need after that you know what you're missing. You're not missing much, actually, but the only thing you're really missing is a large condenser. That's pretty much anything you're missing from that set. George Whittem. Well, this is in, this is obviously is, uh, specific to the use case, but um, an SM57 is an SM58 when you screw that on, so that's two for one right there. Um, I can't go wrong with that. I had a college professor who would mic an entire recording studio with these just to show everybody how if you use one microphone correctly, you'll get a good sounding recording. Then you can learn how to use all the other microphones. 
Um, I also recommend a, a good multi-pattern mic. We mentioned the U87. We mentioned the 414. This is the uh, the spiritual an, uh, uh, evolvement of a 414. This is a Austrian audio well, with a pop screen on it, 818, and that's a switchable pattern microphone where you can actually design a polar pattern of choice as well and program it into the microphone. So extremely flexible, incredibly good sounding, and very high quality. And then, yeah, we did mention shotgun mics. One we didn't mention, this is this is Rhodes' answer to the MKH-416. This is called the NTG-5, about half the price. This mic's claim to fame is extremely high sensitivity, so this needs very little gain, so you would never use this on anything loud, whereas the SM7 would be, or SM58, you could use on something pretty loud. Courtney. Well, I agree with the SM58. Always good to have one of those in your kit for recording, you know, gunshots, explosions, rock singers, you know, things of that neighborhood, high SPL value stuff. Uh, and you can, you know, they survive, a, take a beating and keep on carrying on. And also the 416. Okay. Sorry about that. 416, go to someone else. All right. Well, fair enough. We're, I think we've uh, dealt with the, the different types of microphones and hopefully done it well. Let's go to the next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. Is the size of or the amount of the coil in a dynamic mic related to their sensitivity? Marty Adias, start us off. Well, uh, yes, actually. Um, the number of wire coils that are in the magnet, the size of the magnet, the number of wires, uh, uh, Technically, that would affect its sensitivity, but you reach a, a point of diminishing returns because that all adds a lot of size and weight to the microphone uh, and also will affect how fast the diaphragm can move because it's then moving a larger coil of wire behind it. So your transient response goes down, your high frequency response goes down. But what they have been able to do is improve the magnet and use a stronger magnet. So you've got the same number of wire coils the same uh, size magnet, but a stronger magnet will influence a uh, larger dynamic uh, uh, magnetic field that uh, the coil of wire is moving into, and that will in increase its sensitivity and, and give a higher uh, output voltage. Carl. Yeah, so as Marty said, um, you, there's a limitation because when you actually create a coil around a magnet and we're actually we're pushing a diaphragm so the actual coil is moving in the magnet you're creating an electrical signal on the coil but you're actually magnetizing the coil as well so once that coil becomes magnetized it actually becomes harder it becomes sloshy it becomes harder to move so the more coils you actually put into it the more the permanent magnet will magnetize the coil so there's always there's always and this is why dynamic mics have this trade-off and they normally you'll notice if you take a look at the specifications as i said specifications are really important to understand how microphones work so you notice for nearly all dynamic microphones they kind of roll off at around 18 kilohertz they don't go to 20 kilohertz there's a reason for that because the coil has to move at 18 kilohertz it has to move at that frequency and to do that, you want to move at that frequency, but you actually want to create a signal which may be negative 60 dB or negative 55 dB. If you add one less coil there, it will move faster, but you will now be like negative 80 dB 
So it'll be, it'll be beyond the range of any preamp. So you could go over 20 kilohertz if you wanted to on a dynamic microphone, but your signal would be so weak because you have less coils. If you had more coils, your signal would be stronger, but it would take much more pressure and to actually create a signal, but you actually will never get to 20 kilohertz because the coil itself has become magnetized when it moves. So therefore the magnet is actually stopping it from moving and not the weight. So it's actually the electromotive effect which is all, you know, you know, Faraday kind of figured this out 200 years ago. Um, but essentially, that's what's happening. It's the same way we actually, um, a speaker works in reverse. So speaker in reverse is essentially a dynamic microphone, which Marty had in one of his pictures. Um, it's the same thing with speakers too. So the sensitivity of speakers versus their frequency response is the same thing. But essentially, it's a diminishing returns. You can have um, more coils, which means you have a higher signal, but your cutoff would be about maybe 8 kilohertz good for a telephone. That's about it. All right. Let's move to the next question. It's from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Andy wants to know, thoughts on using an ME30 shotgun on a gooseneck table stand for conference rooms? Let's start with Greg Curta. Greg. Um, yes, I, I suppose that could work. The things that, that you kind of have to keep in mind is, number one, that shotgun's going to have a very narrow pattern. So it will not it will not help you if people are moving around or it depends on far it is from if it's if it's right in front of somebody, as soon as they turn their head to talk to somebody else, they're going to go away. Okay. Uh, number two is the the propensity for shotgun mics to um, to increase the amount of reverb that's in the room. Um, so I I would kind of take that into consideration. I personally I think you'd be better off with a with a short shotgun, a cardioid, or a hypercardioid, or something like Ronnie that. Ronnie Hoffman. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, with uh, Greg. Uh, we've tried that. It's a little bit too narrow, and uh, uh, at the at the normal conference, you have people talking right and left. Uh, what we have found to work uh, the best is the uh, the Microflex series from from Sure, um, which is. Uh, you can you can have it in different configurations, both cardioid and and supercardioid, and um, they they are uh, really our go-to conference microphone. They are uh, they are very robust. They can take some beating and is uh, easily transported here and there. The the base is not too heavy, uh, also. So, George, exactly what Greg said. Okay, Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I concur. And if you're putting it on a gooseneck, you're just getting it closer to the person, uh, which means that it's more likely to be off axis if they turn a little bit. You know, if it's a little further away, that pattern spreads out a little bit and you get a little bit more coverage from that uh, from that uh, super cardioid pattern. Uh, so don't get it too close to the person and putting it on a gooseneck where they might be right on top of it would probably be a mistake. Marty Adius. Yeah, so this is a short shotgun microphone. Um, I've used similar microphones. Uh, Audio-Technica had a line, I think it's a discontinued line, uh, that was a, a basically a shotgun microphone that could be mounted to a short gooseneck. And I and it, it, it worked for me in a sanctuary I was in that was uh, I had a lot of reflections from the loudspeakers that, that were 
those reflections just wound up at the pulpit. Um, and so after trying a lot of different cardioid and super cardioid microphones, just didn't give me the, the rejection that I needed from that particular angle and the short shotgun microphone actually worked. Um, but yes, uh, uh, it is that you, you are all correct that it has a, it will have a narrower pickup angle. Um, and so that, that has also been a, an issue. How, um, this, uh, this particular microphone, here's the polar pattern, uh, is kind of wide actually. It's almost, almost, uh, 90 to 180 degrees from the front. So it's, it's not that narrow, but it also has a, a fairly good rear lobe for pickup. Um, so yeah, it can be used. Uh, but it's not necessarily the best microphone. It depends on the particular application. And I'll just add one quick note. You know, these are the technique. These are the the uh, features of the microphone itself. How you use it also changes. I mean, I'm using a narrow pad and microphone, but I'm I'm used to being right here. I don't move. I keep myself in the same place. And you've heard people have. If I'm talking at the same level and I'm kind of moving over here, you're seeing a substantial difference in the amount. And you see rock singers who I'm going to use my foam microphone if they're uh, whispering or doing something low. But if they belt, it's suddenly they're pulling the microphone away to change the dynamics of it. So it's both the microphone itself and how it's used that determines sometimes whether it's appropriate. Let's get to the next question. From Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada, is the proximity effect a product of the design of the capsule or the body? Marty, start us off. It is the way that the, the capsule is designed. So pretty much all directional microphones will have a proximity effect. Um, and, and what's happening, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a graphic. <laughs> I'm missing a graphic uh, that shows how a, a cardioid microphone uh, is made. There are ports behind the capsule that allow sound to come in behind the capsule. And the differential, uh, the difference between the sound pressure at the front of the capsule and the sound pressure at the back of the capsule creates cancellations depending on where, if the sound is coming from behind, there will be more pressure on the back of the capsule um, and it creates that cancellation and that's how uh, you get the, po the, the polar pattern. Uh, there can be very complex physical configurations of those ports that can help reduce the proximity effect in some higher priced microphones. But it has nothing to do with the size of the body or the handle or even whether even a cardioid microphone, which has no handle, will also have a proximity effect. So it, it is the capsule itself. Mitchell? I have a slightly different take on that. Uh, I think it's a collaboration between the capsule and the body. Um, for example, uh, in 1975, I first encountered the Electrovoice RE20 uh, working at a radio station. Pretty, pretty big microphone. They used to call it the Baby Rattler. And it was so big, but it was large, and you could get right on top of it, and you would get no proximity at all. In fact, the plosives were greatly reduced. And I have to think, there it is right there. Greg is showing one. Um, I think that the porting on it had a lot to do with uh, cutting out the proximity, as Marty was explaining. So uh, it is still, to this day, a microphone that you can get right on top of it, and 
not so much proximity, but I think it's a collaboration between the capsule and the body design. Yeah, often on the longer microphones, you will find, and I hate to make that sound, but there's ports all along the back end. I don't know if I can maybe switch this around so you can see them more easily. Uh, all these things are part of the functional design of the microphone. Again, I apologize. Oh, good. Ronnie's got one up there. Um, the point of those is that they have to do with how the microphone is designed. If you manage to gaff tape up half of those, that will not do your mic any good. So do not do that. Uh, Carl, you had a quick note on that? Yeah, so essentially what's actually happening, the reason why as you get closer, um, the bass response essentially ticks up. We actually have an upward tick in the bass response. It's got to do with, um, essentially it's, it's, it's a bit of wave theory here, but it's essentially phasing and amplitude. Your amplitude will go up enormously as you get closer. So every, every so if you're one foot away and you and you go six inches away, that's a doubling. You go to three inches away, that's doubling again. So it's it's four times what it was at one foot. But also you've got this phase. Um, and so the bass response in the phase, so essentially your voice, let's say it's your voice, the bass end of your voice is hitting the front of the diaphragm and hitting the back of the diaphragm at different times. And then it's actually resonating. So it's actually essentially it's resonating in the bass frequency because that's actually quite easy to do in bass frequency because they're very slow compared to the high frequency, it won't resonate. Um, res well, actually, it does actually happen. So when you hear an opera singer break glass, that is the exact same thing. That is the proximity effect of an opera singer breaking a wine glass with their voice is a proximity effect. It's because now the, the wine glass is actually vibrating more than it should because they've gotten to a certain closeness at a certain pitch at a certain amplitude and it's a phase in the amplitude and it breaks the wine glass. Proximity effect is like a very, very minor version of breaking the wine glass. That's it. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from John Folson, Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. What about a mic to grab out uh, ambience at sports fields for streaming games? Looking for permanent install, weatherproof, one mic per field venue. Mic plugged into an Iowa NDI camera. Ooh, that's going to be a tough one, Marty. All right. Well, that is a tough one because if you're going to permanently mount it in a place where you can collect good audio, it's probably not going to be very accessible, uh, and you're even intending for it to, to stay there. So it needs to be directional. It needs to be weatherproof. Uh, it needs to be uh, very, very robust. Um, and so... If unless you want an omnidirectional microphone, in which case put the Countryman B3 lavalier up there, it's it's waterproof, it, it'll survive for a long time. But if you need something more directional, then you're talking about a shotgun microphone, and I will point you to something like this. So um, this is there's a shotgun microphone inside the windscreen basket, and over that is a rain shield. Um, because when you're dealing with outdoor environments, uh, you need to isolate that microphone from wind noise, which and from rain noise and protect the microphone. So this this cover is called a Rain Man cover. You can get it from remote audio in uh, Nashville, in Canada, Atlanta, I think. Um, and this will protect the microphone from um, all kinds of wet weather. Uh, and it's that's one of the options. George Whittem. I was just trying to see how you actually connect a microphone to the, the NDI camera that you're talking about, and I don't see how you you could. I don't. I might be missing something, but I don't see an 
an input. I did find a PTZ one that has a line-in jack on the back, and so you would still need some sort of a pre-amplifier to get the signal into it. And you didn't mention whether you need stereo or mono. So, yeah, it's a hard one. It is a hard one to answer correctly. And unfortunately, I think that takes us to just about all the time we're going to have today. I want to thank, what what an amazing panel we had today. Uh, literally, so many years of experience. I hope we answered, we didn't get to every question, but I hope we answered as many as we could. And uh, we'll be back next week on Wednesday again with another audio session. So you can hang on with them. Till, and we also answer audio questions every single day here. So if you want to come back and uh, repeat your question, please do that. Tomorrow's show, uh, Matthew Samiglio be here from Altheon. Uh, he was on once before, and we had a great discussion. Matthew was one of the guys who worked at NBC for many years, traveling all over the world doing remote production. Now he works for Altheon and uh, Altheon.io, and he's the CEO there, and he's going to be coming back to bring us up to date on all the changes that are happening uh, with that. It's a content distribution system, a bit like Frame.io and things like that, so a lot of people are looking at these kind of content distribution systems, and particularly his, uh, he's going to talk to us about a couple of things, USDZ, which is the three-dimensional ability to in their content distribution system to handle content like that, and also what they're doing in terms of AI integration. So if you're interested in the artificial intelligence stuff, good good day to come tomorrow. Friday, we'll be talking about what makes a studio. So if you're interested in converting a workspace in your home or somewhere else into some place that you can do production, we'll have a whole day devoted to that on Friday. Our close. Thank you to our producers, our panelists, the the crew and the back end. Everybody comes together every day today and manages to just do our best to give you information and to help you solve your problems. We'll be back doing that tomorrow and we'll do it in after hours right after the show is over. So thank you for watching and roll credits. Which is absolutely for whispering. Great proximity effect. I can't hear you. <laughs> Does this the go automatically? The proximity effect is hard. I, th I think we should do a, a, a count. Who has the most microphones on this panel today? I, the numbers would be staggering. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. Probably Marty. Yeah, probably <laughs> Marty. Just in like Marty's John's, picture. I like I John's mind. Oh, yeah. Preto's got a Mr. Microphone. Mr. Microphone. Yeah, that's, that's the one. You got it, baby. Never had to use my lip mic. <laughs> yeah, you did. I'm sticking oh, with this guy. But I didn't get to talk I, about it. Floppy. The microphone missed technology from Nareva. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate your coming. Where's that proximity when you need it? <laughs> Thank you.